You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right. Merry Christmas to you. It's good to be able to be here with you and the church is oriented around song, sermon, and sacrament, and that's exactly what we're doing here tonight, um, getting together and singing. Um, I'm the pastor, I'm Ryan Tipton, I'm the pastor of Ecclesia. And uh, we've got some of our folks here, about half of our folks or more are home or out of state. Uh, My bunch is homesick with fever, Um, but it is so good uh, to be here with you all. Um, You know, there's been some um, speculation about Christmas and whether we should celebrate it or not. Is it a pagan holiday, et cetera? Um, I believe uh, Italian Roman Catholics find themselves in the number of individuals who do not um, celebrate this holiday. They consider it a pagan one. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is according to the Oxford Dictionary of Christian Worship, uh, which I've tried to get Tyson to read from time to time, um, uh, we first observed Christmas uh, in 354 uh, as a church. And so you stand in, in a long tradition of uh, a coming together as saints to get together and look and celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God. Uh, that, that's, that's what happens, and that's, that's why we're here. And uh, it's my job, Adam's job, to uh, stand uh, before you tonight and just to open God's Word briefly. Uh, and I mean briefly, I've got 12 minutes, which means we're going to have a Christmas miracle here in just a second. Um, to look at God's Word and... And, and say, this is who he is. This is who Jesus is. This is who we've oriented our lives around. This is the reason we love our wives like Christ loved the church is because Jesus became a man. Uh, everything that we do in our lives uh, happens to be because of this. I was with Tyson and <clears throat> Adam at work a couple of weeks ago and quoted them a quote from Wayne Grudem, and I'll sum it up because it's quite lengthy. And uh, he goes along to say, you know, the resurrection to him is a, a wonderful miracle, but it is not the greatest miracle in all of, the new, all of the Bible, nor is the creation of the world, but it is the fact that an infinite God uh, could come and put his nature in a finite nature like ours, is, is what he goes on to say. Um, I, I like to explain it to our people like this. For Jesus to become a man, what you and I celebrate today, for Jesus to become a man is like putting the Pacific Ocean um, in a Yeti tumbler, you know, about yay big. It's just not going to happen, right? But that's, that's precisely what happens when God becomes a man. We, we put what is infinite in this finite nature. And um, Adam's going to be talking about a few things. And our, our goal this morning as ministers is just to point you to Jesus. Uh, that's, that's the goal. Uh, I believe that he's going to talk to you um, uh, about what Jesus does um, with our curses and with our sin um, and, and uh, what he what he breaks um, and, and I, tonight, tonight I'm going to be talking to you about just the fact that the incarnation shows us Jesus the Savior number one number two it shows us Jesus the intercessor and if you don't know what the word intercessor mean it, ju- it just it means someone who prays for you right um, and so we're going to look at that this little baby in a manger is actually a coronated king and your eternal prayer warrior. 
Um, and so we're going to just talk about that briefly, I mean really briefly, and then last but not least, we'll talk about the fact that uh, when Jesus comes to earth and he's laying there in the manger, the incarnate son of God, that you and I get a prophet, priest, and king. So the incarnation shows Jesus as Savior, he shows him as an intercessor, and he shows him as prophet, priest, and king. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and, and what that means is is that I often forget my need for a Savior. I was raised in a Baptist church, though I was not converted until I was 19. And so I was around the gospel all the time. I heard it all the time, very desensitized to it, would not uh, accept it or respect it in any way. And, and, and as a result, uh, we sort of, the, the, the church culture in which I lived in was a, a, a wonderful one, uh, to be sure, but... What we did by, by habit was we took the gospel and we, we used it for conversion and then we dismissed it and it sort of was done away with. And I think one thing that uh, sort of the reform resurgence, if you want to call it that, or the new Calvinism, whatever you want to call it, uh, one of the good things that has come from it is the fact that we've recognized that the gospel is, is something that we just don't discard when we get done with it at conversion. When Jesus comes and forgives your sin uh, and you believe, you're a believing believer and repenting repenter, you don't just leave that gospel there. It, it, it goes with you. And what that means is, is that you have to live in perpetuity or, or constantly living with the reality of just that, that you, you were this and now you're that. You should, as I preach to yourselves, the gospel all the time. Because what it does is it creates something in us. It festers something in our hearts and in our vocations and in our parenting and our marriages. And it tells us that we are deep need, we have deep needs as people. It tells us that we have a need for a savior. I don't know about you, but so much of my day, I don't go around thinking that I need a savior. And I need Jesus to save me every day of my life. Do I believe in the perseverance of the saints? Of course I do. Do I need this Savior? Am I, am I completely partaking in this festival, this Christian festival, uh, according to this calendar called Christmas Eve, where I'm looking for the first coming of Jesus? Yeah, I have a real need for a Savior. And I think keeping the gospel front and center certainly does that. Uh, many of us experience uh, hopelessness. Hopelessness is the uh, the great mother of hope. You must be first hopeless, I think, before you you, you begin to hope. And many of you need uh, that right now. Some of you, uh, you're excellent preachers. You're much better preachers than I ever ever am. You know, um, you preach to yourself messages all day, every day. You probably don't stop from the time that you get up to the time you go to sleep. Now, your preaching may not be biblical to yourselves. And if you're anything like me, oftentimes you may just constantly preach messages of discontentment to your own heart about how things are going on. And you may not, you may not preach messages like, well, I am so blessed because I am in such great need of Christ to be my Savior. Um, you, you may constantly go around with you know, the mantra in the sermon, my life stinks, that, and, and preaching that uh, to yourself is not the same thing as you recognizing as a Christian that you need Jesus. Let's say you're born again and converted. Praise God. You still need Jesus, folks. Um, and I think that living in this, in this posture, 
this posture of need uh, and humility is 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 most important. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I am very cognizant of all of the needs that I have in my life. I'm very aware of the social problems that I have, right, um, and the needs that I have. I'm, I'm aware uh, of um, sort of the familial issues, the financial ones, the physical ones. Certainly the emotional needs in my life are front and center. But it's funny how those spiritual needs in my life slip to the very back of my priority list and focus. That said, I don't always see this manger as something that I need. And and, and the truth of it is, is that uh, our social problems, physical problems, and they are many, by the way. I mean, uh, pastorally, don't, don't hear me be insensitive to those. I mean, they are real. They are front and center. I hear them all the time, if not experience them myself. They're real, but they're not as real as our deep, deep need for Christ. Uh, and what's so crazy is that I nor Adam can convince you uh, of your need for Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job, even as a believer, to remind you of your deep-seated need for a Savior, for you to prioritize what your problems in life really are. And and that is, wow, what would my life look like without a Savior? In in my eighth-grade Christian doctrine class, I orient my students, my 13- and 14-year-olds, by telling them this. We're going to substitute for several weeks here the idea of salvation, and rather we're going to say rescue, because they understand rescue very well. They can tell you story after story after story after story, great stories, by the way, of rescue in their life. But this word salvation, to many of them, they've been in the church so long, it's just dry toast to them doesn't mean anything. But when you and I come together in in many, many years of history and continuity tonight to celebrate a Savior, the first thing that we see is we see Jesus, uh, through the incarnation, giving us the fact that he is a Savior. And friends, I I don't know about you, but I need rescue. (laughs) I do. I don't have it all together. Um, I I desperately need you. I'm glad that he's come to my life. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for it. I, I live in that reality, but I, I also live in the reality um, of uh, understanding that he is my only hope. He is um, my only hope. The Heidelberg Catechism, as well as the New City Catechism's first question says, what is our only hope in life and death? And it is the fact that, oh, dear God, we need a Savior, right? Uh, and that we are not our own, the answer says in the catechism, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, the text today that I'm going to read you is Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 11. It's a beautiful, familiar chapter to you. Um, talks about Jesus. Um, can you find Jesus under every rock in the Old Testament? You better bet you you can. And this is a big rock. Um, and it's, easy to, it's easy to find him here. Isaiah 53, uh, verses 5 through 11. Um, you start with verse 5. These are the words of God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is our great Savior in the manger. All we 
like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. There's our Savior. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. He was innocent. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, a haunting verse. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he makes his, uh, excuse me, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, listen to this, my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their sin. There is tonight no good news of Jesus' birth without the bad news that we so desperately need him. And that's what point one is all about, is is crying out for our our deep need and recognizing that there's none righteous, no, not one. Uh, So uh, the good news is that we we do have a Savior. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders um, is what the Old Testament says. And, and then you and I get the righteousness of God. We've, we get the Savior. We are rescued, right? Um, so the, the prayer for you tonight is certainly a constant prayer for me and my family and my household. And that, that, would, that is that we would keep front and center this very real need um, that we have recognizing uh, the fact that we need a Savior. And number two, the incarnation just doesn't provide us with Jesus as Savior. It also provides us with Jesus as intercessor. Jesus as intercessor. So I've got three minutes to preach two points. This is not going to work, Adam. Um, um, We should have known better. Um, So uh, the word intercessor just means the person who, who prays for you. Right, And, of course, the reason that this comes front and center to me is because we don't have this baby laying in a manger. Then you do not have a, a, a... you know, a dead king and then a resurrected king and then an ascended king and then a coronated king and then a king that prays for you. Now, pastorally, I am acquainted with several of you, though many of you may not go to my church. We have some ministry roots back in youth ministry or wherever we may be, or perhaps friendship is our pastoral tie. Nevertheless, I get calls and or texts from many, many of you constantly, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? And I'm glad to do that. That's my job. I mean, as a minister and elder, uh, if we're not preaching the word, we're praying. And those are primary elder responsibilities according to the scriptures. And I'm glad to do it. Uh, I'm also glad to teach you the, the doctrine that Jesus is praying for you in heaven. And, and this should bring you great comfort. I would think next to the good, loving sovereignty of God and his providences, the thing that should make you rest easiest at night is the fact that not only do you have a Savior this Christmas Eve, but you also have, you have someone who prays for you all the time. He prays for you when you don't ask for him to pray for you about things, right? Uh, he, he, he knows all of your needs. He, he, he knows them. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
prays for you all the time. Now, he may not pray for you the way that you, to the Father, the way that you want him to pray for you. He may not pray for you the things that you would want him to pray, but he's definitely praying. And so the, the question is, pray tell, pastor, what is he praying uh, for us? And I think, Tyson, if we could look at the Bible, probably would see, I, he's probably playing a lot of the things that he prayed for us in the scriptures. If, if you looked, uh, you know, he wasn't always praying for us to be delivered from things, right? If you consider Peter, his good friend who was there, and he talks about his prayers for his friend Peter, and he says, Satan has asked that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith may not fail, right? So he didn't say, but I have prayed that Satan would be cast out and that this whole thing would go away. He didn't say that to his friend uh, who was under, about to be under uh, demonic and satanic attack. Um, really difficult time in his life. He said, I pray that you will go through it, and I pray that you would do it, um, with your faith made well. So maybe maybe this Christmas you could look at a Christ child and you could, you could say, thank God he came and thank God he died. Thank God he's risen again for me and thank God he ascended and coronated as our king into heaven and thank God he prays for me. This child grew up and to this day still prays for me every single day. I would think probably the other things that he's praying for, we could probably find in the high priestly prayer. You study the prayers of Jesus. Um, by the way, uh, Christians, you should be people of prayer. Just because our, our popular church culture is dismissing prayer from our services and yet from our lives doesn't mean that we should go the way of the trend. We are people of prayer. That's who we are. It is a discipline that we should take. We should imitate our Lord and, 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 and follow his lead here, uh, uh, certainly. Um, but if you look at the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays, what is he praying for constantly? He's praying for unity, isn't he? He's praying for discipleship. Um, I don't know what the Lord is praying for you tonight, but I, I can promise you this. I know that Genesis 18 is true, and the, Lord, the, the judge of the whole earth will do what is right, and I also know that the intercessor of the whole earth is praying what is right for you as well. So a good segue for, uh, perhaps for our prophet, priest, and king, which we will not get all the way through uh, as we are negative three minutes here, I think, um, is, is prophet, priest, and king. The fact that Jesus came and he didn't stay the baby in the manger, did he? He, he didn't stay there. He, he, he came uh, to be your prophet. He came to speak for God. He is God. He came to be your priest. He came to be your mediator. He came to stand in that gap for you and fill gaps that you never could by yourself. And then he came to be your king. He came, he, he came to be your king. That's the reason we sing this song, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth this time of year, so that you would bow at the lordship of Jesus Christ, so that you understand um, precisely who he is. Uh, one last verse here. Uh, when I see the word priest, I see so many things, and what I don't see is uh, a sympathetic one. And I think many of you, uh, perhaps, perhaps you feel connect, disconnected to God uh, tonight. A and I would have two closing comments for you. First of all, let me strongly encourage you and plead with you as a Christian brother not to worship your feelings or follow them. 
Let let me invite you to make the Lord Jesus the king of the universe and not your own emotional constitution or lack thereof. Let me encourage you to follow Christ. But number two, if if you are in need of, of, maybe you, you feel disconnected from God and you don't feel like he sympathizes with you. You have a priest who has become like us in every single way. That Christ child who came, he came and he went through every single thing that you went through. He sympathizes with you like no one else ever could. He is certainly closer than a brother as he is himself, um, our life and breath, our sustainer. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Um, Some good homework tonight would be uh, going and looking at uh, verses like uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and following, Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read this, and then um, we're going to be done. Our closing text is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Then we're going to watch a video together. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us and our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, you're loved. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you. Uh, Blessings. And uh, let's, let's enjoy this video we're about to watch. Luke investigated many of the earliest eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus and then composed this account. And the story begins up in the hills of Jerusalem, the place where Israel's ancient prophets said that God himself would come one day to establish his kingdom over all the earth. In this city is the temple run by the priests. And one of them, named Zechariah, was working in the temple when he had a vision that freaks him out. An angel appears and says that he and his wife will have a son. What's this all about? Well, Zechariah and his wife, we're told, are very old. They've never been able to have children. And Luke's setting up a parallel here with Abraham and Sarah, the great ancestors of Israel, because they too were very old and could never have kids. Yet God gave them a son, Isaac, which is how the whole story of Israel began. And so Luke's implying here that God's about to do something that significant for this people once again. The angel tells Zechariah to name the son John. And then he says that this son's going to fulfill a promise of Israel's ancient prophets, that somebody would come one day to prepare Israel to meet their God when he arrived to rule in Jerusalem. Because right now, Jerusalem is ruled by the Romans. Yeah, specifically, it's governed by a man named Herod, who's a puppet king under the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish people wanted nothing more than to be free and govern themselves in their own land. So this is shocking news. Everything's going to change. God's on his way. But how is he going to arrive? Well, to find out, Luke takes us out of Jerusalem and then up into a small town in the hills of an out-of-the-way region called Galilee. There we find a young woman named Mariam, or we call her Mary. She was engaged to be married. And then an angel appears to Mary saying that she's going to have a son. She's supposed to name him Jesus, which in Hebrew means the Lord saves. And he will be a king like David who will rule over God's people forever. And then Mary asks, okay, well, how is this possible? Because I'm a virgin. And she's told that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1 is going to generate life inside her womb. 
God is about to bind himself to humanity through the conception and the birth of the Messiah. And so Mary goes from some backwoods no-name girl to the future mother of the king? Exactly. In fact, she sings a song about how this reversal of her own social status points to a greater upheaval to come. Through her son, God's going to bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the poor and the humble. He's going to turn the whole world order upside down. So when Mary was really pregnant, she and her fiancé, Joseph, had to go down to Bethlehem. Yeah, there was a decree across the Roman Empire about new taxes, and so everybody had to go get registered in the town of their family line. There were so many visitors in Bethlehem, they can't find a guest room. And so the only place they can find is a spot where animals sleep. Now nearby were some shepherds with their flocks, and an angel appears, which, of course, freaks them out. But they're told to celebrate because tonight in Bethlehem, a savior has been born. Yeah, they're told to go and find this baby, and they'll know that it's the Messiah because he's going to be wrapped up and laying in a grimy feeding trough. Yeah, which is pretty gross. Totally. And then these shepherds, who aren't very clean themselves, they go and find the newborn Jesus in this really dingy place, and their minds are blown. They go home wondering what on earth is about to happen. And this is all really strange. I mean, if God's really coming to save the world, this isn't how you would expect him to arrive. Born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl, celebrated by no-name shepherds. Exactly. I mean, everything is backwards in Luke's story, and that's the point. He is showing how God's kingdom was first revealed in these dirty places among the poor, because Jesus is here to bring salvation by turning our world order upside down. All right. So glad to be here tonight to be able to celebrate uh, the Christmas season with you. Before um, I share with you some thoughts from God's Word, I want to uh, share a story with our kids. So I want to invite all of our kids that are a part of our kids' class uh, to maybe come down front and maybe sit right here on the first two rows or sit right here on the floor. So if you'll do that real quick, I want to share a quick story with you that I think encompasses a lot of the hope and the, the joy and the celebration of Christmas. Um, it's not necessarily a Christmas story, but I think it packages uh, a lot of the things that we think of when we talk about celebrating Christmas. It's a story written by R.C. Sproul. Um, some of you may know him. He's a beloved pastor and author who actually recently passed away this week. And uh, it's a great story, and I want to share it with our kids today, and I think we've got some pictures up on the screen um, for our parents to follow along with. I'm actually going to jump ahead to um, this page right here, the actual story. All right. Everybody ready to listen? All right. It says, Once upon a time there was a great king who was the king of light. He lived in the light and he made the light, and his light was so perfect and so pure that he was called the king without a shadow. This great king of light made a group of people And he made them so that they could shine brightly just as he did. He called them his little lightlings. He set the lightlings in a beautiful garden that he prepared for them, a garden that was full of bright sunshine. The sun bathed the garden every day and helped the flowers, plants, and fruit grow in great abundance. The bright light of the sun helped keep everyone warm in the garden. The lightlings loved it when the king came to visit them at the end of the day. Who do you think the king of light represents? 
God, yeah. And jo- just like God created Adam and Eve in a garden, this story talks about the king of light creating a group of people, the lightlings, in a garden as well. It says, but one day something terrible happened. The lightlings decided to do what they wanted to do instead of what their king commanded them to do. So they disobeyed the king and sinned against him. The very moment they sinned, their lights became dim and they were filled with shame and great embarrassment. They ran as fast as they could to get away from the king. They didn't want the king of light to see them. They ran out of the garden and into the woods and hid themselves in the darkest place they could find. From then on, they were afraid of the light because they knew that where the light was, the king would be and the king would see them in their shame. Just like Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and they tried to hide from God as well, the lightlings, they sinned against the king of light. They did what they wanted to do. They disobeyed him and they tried to hide because they were ashamed of their actions. It says, after the lightlings left, the king began to remove his light from the garden. It soon became cold and covered with weeds and thorns and sticky briars. The lightlings moved further and further into the woods until they lived in a place that was almost completely covered in darkness. It was so dark they had to grope around as if they were blind, feeling their way through the forest. Often they would trip and fall, scuffing their knees and bruising themselves. It was awful living in the dreadful darkness all the time, where the only light they ever saw was in barely lit shadows that danced in the forest. In fact, they couldn't tell the difference anymore between night and day. Then one night, or perhaps it was day, far off in the distance, they saw a blinding light shining through the trees. They could see the light coming from miles and miles away. They were frightened by it. They thought the light meant that the king was coming to find them to punish them for their sins. So most of the lightlings began to stumble quickly away from the light. So the lightlings had been living in darkness for so long because of their sin. And then all of a sudden, light started to shine forth once again. But they were scared because they thought the king of light was coming to punish them. It says, but some of the lightling children were so amazed by the light and curious about it that they decided to see from where it was coming. They set off and traveled for miles and miles. It took them a long time, but as they moved, they saw the light shining brighter and brighter. Finally, they came to a clearing in the forest. In the middle of the clearing, they saw a father lightling, a mother lightling, and a baby who was shining like the sun. The blazing light seemed to be coming right out of the baby himself. The lightlings who saw it were shocked and surprised. They asked the father lightling, who is this baby? Where did he come from? The father lightling answered, he is not my son. He is the son of the king of light. Just like Mary and Joseph were the earthly parents of Jesus, but ultimately Jesus is God's son. In the same way here, these two lightlings are saying, this isn't our baby, this is the son of the king of light. The king has given him to us as a special gift. He has been born for us. When he grows up, he will be called the light of the world. There will be no darkness strong enough to hide his light, no darkness deep enough to send his light away. When they heard this, the lightling children knelt down at the baby's feet and began to worship him in fear and reverence. When they stood up again, their own faces were shining, but the light that was shining in their faces was not coming from inside them. It was a reflection of the light coming out of the baby. The lightlings were now surrounded with the light of the child they had visited. They rushed back to their homes, their friends and their families as fast as their feet could carry them. When they got home, they were still shining. 
The other lightlings were frightened at the sight of them. They asked, what happened to you? So the lightling children told their story. We saw a baby who was shining with light. He is the son of the king of light. The king has given us a child. He has given us his own son to be the light of the world. The lightlings noticed that already there was more light in the forest. Now they could begin to see where they were going. They could walk without falling. They could run and play without bumping into trees or rocks and getting bruised. Some still hid from the light, but others realized they didn't need to be afraid anymore. They saw that living in the light was much better than the darkness they were used to. This is a story about um, a, a fairy tale type of a setting, but it's ultimately about what we read about in the Bible, right? That, that God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They sinned, they rebelled against God, and then everybody that's been born from Adam and Eve have been born into sin, okay? So even though you guys have mommies and daddies, ultimately you come from Adam and Eve, and the Bible says that you were born into sin because of Adam and Eve's sin, right? But God, in his love for us, sent Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, right? The birth of Jesus. God sent Jesus in order to pay for our sins. Just like we see here in this picture where Jesus or where the, where the, the, the son of the king of light comes and, and light begins to shine forth. That's what happened when Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago. He began to reverse what we call the curse, the curse of the Garden of Eden. All right, so as you celebrate Christmas with your families tonight and tomorrow, as you're opening up presents, ultimately, we want you guys to remember that we celebrate Jesus, right? That Jesus has come to be the best present possible for us. He's come to save us from our sins. All right, y'all can go back and sit with your parents. I wanna give y'all just a couple of more thoughts. I appreciate Ryan coming and sharing with us tonight and helping to share the word with us. As a, as a church here at Sovereign Hope, we've been anticipating the Christmas season through Revelation chapter 12. It's not a typical passage that you look to when you read the Christmas story, but I do want to read it to us tonight for those that haven't been with us. Because ultimately what we see in the Christmas season is the victory of Jesus over the great dragon of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12 verse 1 it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. <coughs> but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. What we find here in Revelation chapter 12 is a picture of how angry Satan gets with the Christmas story. The idea here is that for, for centuries, for years, Satan anticipated gaining humanity to himself, right? He deceives Adam and Eve in the garden. He initiates this great curse. He understood God's plan for Adam and Eve. He tricks them. He deceives them, leads them into sin, leads them into darkness. And for centuries, we see mankind just mired in that darkness, 
right? We see it ups and downs as we see many revivals that maybe spring up in the Old Testament, but we see the great flood has to come upon the earth because of man's great sin. And we see this great dragon who throughout the Old Testament is anticipating the coming Messiah, and he does everything that he can to kill Jesus, right? He wants to extinguish the Jewish people time and time again, story after story in the Old Testament. It's based on Satan's desire to kill the people of God, to eliminate that messianic line. And so Christmas is a celebration that Jesus comes as a fulfillment of all of God's promises. You read the New Testament and how the New Testament talks about the Old Testament, it constantly refers to the Old Testament with the word anticipation. Everything is an anticipation in the Old Testament. When is the great snake crusher coming, right? It's Genesis 3.15 where, where Adam and Eve are first told that they are not going to die and it be the end of their story, right? They're they're there before God, they've eaten of the tree. Satan is there as the great accuser in his accusatory role, anticipating God mediating judgment towards Adam and Eve and telling them that they're dead. They are going to be killed and never forgiven. And yet what we find is the hope, the promise, as God communicates to Satan that yes, he has won the battle for that day, but ultimately the victory belongs to God that he is going to send one who will reverse that curse. Old Testament is full of anticipation. When is the, when is the sacrifice system gonna either, either work or be obliterated by something else, right? They're constantly offering sacrifices, constantly having to come and confess their sins. But there's no end in sight. There's no, there's no ultimate hope for them because they know, man, I'm gonna have to continue to offer animal sacrifices because I'm gonna continue to sin. When will this ever be put to an end? When will there ever be one who can come and who can forgive me ultimately to where I can stop doing this? Old Testament is full of anticipation and anticipates what Ryan already shared with us, a savior. What I wanna call the curse breaker, the curse breaker. Jesus comes as our savior. He comes to break the curse. We see that Genesis 3.15, the hope that one will come. We see the fulfillment of that in Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We celebrate the first coming of Jesus because Jesus came to break this curse of death. He came to destroy the devil. He came to destroy death and he came to set us free. Those that have been living in a lifelong slavery situation, he's come to set us free from that. We celebrate that this Christmas season. The curse breaker has come. First John chapter four. First John chapter four, verse 10. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, it's the same word in the Old Testament for the mercy seat, right? The Ark of the Covenant, that that great place where the sacrifices were being offered. Jesus is the mercy seat for us. He is the ultimate place where ultimate sacrifice was made for our sins. We celebrate that this Christmas season. We celebrate that Jesus came to break the curse, to be our propitiation, to set us free from death, to set us free from Satan. Ryan also shared that that Jesus has come to be our priest. He's come to be the sin stopper, 
not just the curse breaker, but the sin stopper. First John chapter three, verse eight. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Right? From the very beginning, Revelation 12 says that, that, that Satan swept with him a third of the angels. Right? He deceived them as well, and, and they were opposed to God through pride, wanted to be like God. They come down and sell that message to Adam and Eve. You can be like God if you eat of this tree. Jesus comes to destroy that. He comes to destroy the fruit of that. Right? When, when Adam and Eve yield to that temptation, they become sinners. They begin to bear sinful offspring. We see that in Cain and Abel's relationship, right? Cain and Abel grow up, and, and Cain is jealous of Abel and, and reaches out in that jealousy through murder. Adam and Eve have borne their very likeness. Their very likeness is, is, what, is all they can now hope for. There, there's one who is to come to rescue them from that, but what they continue to see is, is one who lets down those, those hopes. Man, if you've ever read through the Jesus Storybook Bible with your kids, uh, time and time again, story after story, they, they, they talk about the hero. But at the end of the story, they, the, the writer anticipates to the reader a greater hero is to come. Yes, this person was great. God did great things for this person. But this person was not the Messiah. This person was not the curse breaker. This person was not the sin stopper, right? This person points us to someone greater who is Jesus. Jesus comes because Satan made a practice of sinning. He's been sinning from the beginning. But first, the second part of chapter three, verse eight says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why, that's, why the, that's why the dragon is so angry. That's why the dragon is sitting there anticipating the birth of Messiah, wanting to kill him, wanting to kill him through Herod's plan to, to wipe out any boy who's two years or younger. Like We can't let the Messiah grow up. We can't let the Messiah redeem his people. Jesus was sent to destroy the works of the devil, to put an end to sin, to rescue people back to him, to save them, to renew them, just like we read in this story by R.C. Sproul, to, to bring back the light, to bring back the purpose for why we were created, to be image bearers of God. Jesus came to break the curse. He came to put a stop to sin. And as Ryan talked about, as, a, as an intercessor, Jesus comes to be the law keeper for us. Romans chapter eight, Verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus has come to be our intercessor, to be our law keeper, Romans 8 tells us, right? We're not saved because of our good works. We're not saved because of the good things that we do, right? That, that's the mixed message that sometimes comes out in Christmas, that if you are a good person, if you're a good child, then you will receive gifts in exchange for that goodness. What the gospel tells us is that we are not good, we are incapable of being good, and yet we get all of the presents in the end, right? Because Jesus comes to be our law keeper, Right? He comes to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law 
for us. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to break the curse. He came to put a stop to sin by saving us, by the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us so that we're being transformed constantly into the image of Christ. Now, will sin ever stop until Jesus comes back? No, but when Jesus comes back, sin and death will be extinguished forever. As much as we celebrate the first coming this season, man, it it pushes us to think towards the second coming as well. When, when Jesus comes again, he inaugurated some of these things. He began these things. He started these things. But man, it should just create a greater anticipation for us. We said Old Testament, great anticipation for the Messiah to come. New Testament continues that anticipation because this isn't it yet. This is not it yet. There are still great things to come. Jesus comes to be our law keeper. That passage in Revelation 12 says that the great accuser Satan has been cast out of heaven, right? In the Old Testament, we see Satan periodically in a couple of different places appearing before God in heaven to accuse God's people. The one we think of most readily is is Job, right? That Satan comes and says, the only reason Job follows you is because you give him things. Take all the things away and Job will quit following you. Satan accused uh, God's people in the Old Testament. He had a place in heaven to accuse God's people. And he was allowed to do so because up to that point, sin had not been paid for, right? Romans 3 tells us that in God's forbearance, he passed over sins. He didn't judge sin because God anticipated the day that Jesus would come. He anticipated the day that Jesus would grow up and be on the cross so that he could then exercise his wrath upon his own son, At that moment, what we've been talking about here at our church, at that moment, Satan was cast out of heaven once and for all. He does not have a role to accuse anymore. Why? Because the great law keeper has come. Previously, Satan could say, hey, this person doesn't belong in heaven. This person doesn't belong in in your presence. They're a sinner. They belong to me. And he could accuse us. But once Jesus came in the flesh, Satan no longer can accuse. Because we don't have a place in heaven based on our good works, but Jesus has ushered us in, right? We've talked about this before here at our church. It's, it's like having security clearance because of somebody you know, right? Previously, you can't get past a certain spot because you don't have clearance. But as soon as your buddy shows up and says, hey, they're with me, man, now you have full access to that, that facility. Jesus gives us full access because he comes to keep the law for us. No longer do we have an accuser in heaven, but first, John tells us we have an advocate, right? He says, John says, stop sinning, right? Why? Because Jesus came to stop sinning. Jesus came to get you to stop sinning, to destroy the works of the devil. But John says, I know you're going to keep sinning at times. He says, here's the good news. You sin and you have an advocate. You have an intercessor. You have someone who stands and doesn't accuse you. You have someone who stands and advocates for you, right? Hey, they don't deserve wrath. I've already borne it for them. I already, already came, already took care of that father, right? Yes, I see that they're continuing to sin. I, I see that they're a work in progress, but, but, but there's no accusation here. I stand as the advocate, Jesus says. I stand as the advocate because I came and I kept the law for them. Last passage that I wanna read to us is Titus chapter two. Because I think there's application in the Christmas message. If Jesus came to break the curse, if Jesus came to stop sin, to 
to create a new people who, who, who love him and who want to obey him, not to earn righteousness, but want to obey him because it's the right thing, it's the thing that makes the most sense. Man, that, that's the message for us, the application for us, is Titus chapter two, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, that's Jesus. We celebrate that with Christmas. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Jesus came, he appeared, that first coming, he brought salvation. If we're truly believers, man, the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled lives. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christmas is about a war, a war between Satan and Jesus, and a war that is so, um, the, the gap between what Satan is able to do and what God is able to do is so vast, right? It's not even a fair war, right? God conquers Satan. He destroys Satan through the gospel of Christmas. He comes to save people, to redeem them, to make them zealous for good works, right? To, to embrace the promise that God's commands are not burdensome. The great war has been won by Jesus. He won it through Christmas. By coming in, in, in the form of man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God's highly exalted him now, Philippians 2 tells us. And we look forward to that exalted king coming back to once and for all rescue us, to do away with sin, to do away with death. I want us to close tonight with the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I know each church does it differently. Um, I want to explain it to you how we do it here. I want to invite all of our believers tonight to participate. Um, we believe that if you're a Christian, if you've repented of your sins, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that you believe in him um, and you are a, a valid participant in the Lord's Supper tonight. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that, that the Lord's Supper has been given to us as a way to remember Jesus. And that's certainly what we do at Christmas, right? We remember the first coming of Jesus. And so we get to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. And by doing so, we are remembering the great things about Jesus. That he came to break the curse by shedding his blood for us. We participate in that remembrance by taking of the juice tonight. We celebrate that he came to be the law keeper, to, to keep the, 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 the commands of God for us through his perfect life. We celebrate that through the bread, which represents his body. Um, and so we wanna invite you to partake tonight if you're a believer. This is no way is meant to save you. And so we certainly don't believe the Lord's Supper saves us, nor do we believe that it keeps us saved or enhances our salvation really in any way. Um, beyond the fact that it's meant to be a, a public encouragement, for you to stand up and to once again testify to others that you are saying yes to Jesus, that you are saying yes to the Messiah, that you believe Jesus has come to break that curse, to be our Savior, that he has come to stop sin, to be our great priest who intercedes for us, who is our advocate, who came to keep the law for us. We celebrate that tonight. We want to invite you to do so. Tyson's going to come and have music playing for us, and then we're going to close tonight through song. Um, we want to invite you to spend some time just praying privately if you would like to in anticipation of partaking tonight. 
Um, how we do it here at Sovereign Hope is in the back. We have one cup and we have um, one piece of bread that you tear from, dip it in the cup and partake, and then you can come back and uh, find your place in your seat. So as you feel led, uh, as we close with, I think, two songs, um, feel free to dismiss yourself to the back and to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. Um, use this as a way of encouragement, both for yourself and for others, um, as we remember Jesus tonight. And as we also look forward to the return of Jesus, because Paul tells us we will do this until Jesus comes back. And so Jesus has yet to return for that second time. And so we partake tonight in anticipation of Jesus coming. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you that we have much to celebrate tonight. Just like the lightlings that we read about in this story. We are people who have been created to give you glory who wandered from that purpose into our sin and darkness. And if left to ourselves, we would never be able to get ourselves out of it. Our best attempts to keep your laws fall well short of your standard of holiness. Father, we're thankful that in your holiness, there is much love to be demonstrated. And so, God, you didn't set aside your holiness to love us, you allowed your holiness to show your love by sending your son, Jesus, to be our savior, to be our prophet, our priest, our king, our intercessor, to be the one who would come to break the curse for us, to be the one who would put an end to sin by dying in our place for sin, by keeping the law for us so that we can be clothed in righteousness. God, we're thankful for your holiness tonight. We know that your holiness demanded payment for sin, and so we thank you for Jesus who came and allowed his body to be broken, allowed his blood to be shed on our behalf. Father, we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, and we do so with a desire to, to honor you with our attitudes. God, I pray that tonight, by partaking, we as individuals would be expressing that we are still saying yes to you, that we still have a desire to renounce sin, that we still have a desire to embrace a zealous mindset for good works through the power of the Holy Spirit who's living inside of us. Father, we remember Jesus tonight through the partaking of your supper. We thank you for his perfection. We thank you for his sacrifice. And God, as we partake tonight, as we celebrate Christmas tonight, as we celebrate all that's been accomplished through your first coming, we cry out to you tonight for the second coming. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, we pray that Jesus would come and put an end to death, to sin, to suffering, to sorrow. We pray that Jesus would come quickly and usher us into eternity that far exceeds everything that we could possibly think. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the anticipation now of, of what eternity looks like that it's not something we have to be scared of. It is something that we can anticipate with great joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.